It's my privilege this morning to welcome a friend of ours to come and share the word. Kent Martin is here with us. We've journeyed together for a long time as a, as a church and with the organization that he represents, Betel, that has a, a rehabilitation community right here in our city also. And he's going to tell you a little bit more about who they are, where they're from. So I'm not going to waste his time by telling you what he's going to tell you in any case. Kent, won't you come up and just share with us? It's such a privilege to have him with us uh, all the way from the UK. Uh, he's American, but he comes from the UK now, and he's got Spanish and all sorts of... So it's so great to have you with us, Ken. Please enjoy just uh, sharing the word, be at home, and won't you receive the word as it comes from Ken. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Pastor Louis. Good morning, everybody. Uh, I want to thank Louis, Natasha, the leaders here, for the great privilege it is to come be able to share the word with you this morning, a little bit about Patel. I can't tell you, it's, it's a real thrill. Our relationship does go back quite a number of years, and in fact, we owe a debt to Hatfield uh, that has impacted our family deeply. Both my children, quite a number of years ago, attended Year of Your Life here. And, yeah. And deeply impacted, I'm glad to say they're both in full-time ministry now, serving the Lord. So uh, we owe you a debt of love and are so grateful to be here with you. My family and I have been missionaries uh, for the last 28 years, so it's a, a special privilege to be here in, on your you know, Pledge and Missions Weekend, such a missional focus, many missionaries here. Uh, it's very humbling. We left America 28 and a half years ago uh, to join a work called Betel, or uh, that is Spanish for Bethel, in Spain. And what we do is we build churches, we run residential communities, and we develop social enterprises. And harmonizing those together, we help bring chaotic people, broken through drugs, alcohol, years, many years of addiction, out of prison, off the street, and we actually build churches and communities with them. Uh, we've spread now into 100 cities in 22 countries around the world, and it's been our privilege to be part of that in Spain, where we served uh, for five years as a family, and then the Lord took us to the UK to take Battelle's work and uh, begin to spread it around the UK. So uh, I don't know if we have any photos this morning. Perhaps I, I had a few scheduled to put up, and if we don't, I'll just carry on. Good. So it's just a few pictures of the people. I think the previous one was the map where we're dist uh, distributed around the world. So that's where we've gone in economies as diverse as Mongolia to all the way to South Africa to, to Latin America, and most of it's what we do is concentrated in Europe. Thank you, next. And these are just a few of the people. What speaks most loudly about the dynamic and the power of what the Holy Spirit is doing through us is through the changed lives. So you can just go through these photos if you would. Very radical, that's what I want you to see, that just how radical the transformations are of heroin addicts, uh, people who suffered 10, 20 years or longer in their families coming off of drugs uh, and alcohol and really seeing the gospel radically transform their lives. It's the greatest privilege of our lives to be part of it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. This woman's South African, actually, and married a former heroin addict from Ireland, and they're both serving with us, living with us in England. Uh, I think there's just one or two more. One of our women in India. Doesn't look like the same woman, does it? <laughs> Completely transformed. One more. Peter was living literally in bins or dumpsters or 
you know, large trash receptacles behind supermarkets, and his life's been transformed, and now he actually helps co-run one of our centers in Manchester. Timon was a heroin addict for 20 years plus. He's now our public relations director for Battelle around the UK. So <laughs> it's great to have somebody who's really lived the whole, the whole experience. So keep going. What we do, I said, we run social enterprises, teach people a work ethic, as well as to help fund a lot of what we do. So we do a lot of furniture restoration. This is our high street furniture brand called Restored. We have a good website growing in the UK now. Keep going. We do a lot of landscape gardening. We do garden transformations, uh, tree felling and tree surgery. Uh, And we also run a number of restaurants around the UK. So all these are meant to teach people employable skills, help them build a work ethic, and then gradually we drip feed them back into society where they begin to change their lives and see their families restored. Next one, and one of the great privileges we had, oh, well, there we, we've saved uh, the UK government in the last 28 years, 2.4 billion rand, more or less, because everything we do is offered for free. People come in for free. Uh, and next, please. That's Coventry Cathedral, one of the preeminent relics of World War II that was bombed uh, right east, east, just east of Birmingham. And uh, we had the privilege last year of having a royal visit. Uh, Kensington Palace sought us out, and Prince William and Kate came to visit us, sat with our men and women for a half hour, heard their stories. Uh, so it was the most nerve-wracking day of our lives, but uh, it, was, it was a tremendous privilege, i got to tell you. And so with that, I think that's it. That's just a brief whistle-stop tour. Thank you. A real whistle-stop tour of what we do, because what we want to do is turn to the Word now. So if you have your Bible, we're going to read from Genesis 22. And today's message is titled, Look Up, Risk More, Sacrifice All. And this is about Abraham's ascent of Mount Moriah. And I'm going to refer to this passage today as the climb of faith that all of us are living, which for Abraham was a few days event, but for every one of us, it's lifelong. So we'll all be able to point ourselves or plot ourselves on the graph of this climb somewhere with what we're experiencing now in life. And so the first point is the climb of faith in life leads to greater risk. Let's read verses 1 to 4. Sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham, God called. Yes, he replied, here I am. Take your son, your only son, yes, Isaac, whom you love so much, and go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will show you. The next morning, Abraham got up early. He saddled his donkey and took two of his servants with him, along with his son Isaac. Then he chopped wood for a fire for a burnt offering and set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day of their journey, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. Now, more than a hundred years old, God tests Abraham. And that test meant he had to climb a mountain. And it was a mountain which in his wildest dreams he never anticipated. It was a mountain that was going to cost him like never before in life. And it was a mountain for which he hardly could have prepared himself. Would you agree? What's at stake? Only his single dearest promise for which he waited for all his life, his young son. (laughs) So I want you to imagine that three-day hike to Mount Moriah, knowing what he was asked to do as a father, I can't imagine, it must have felt like years. 
Because if Abraham's going to obey God, there's no possibility of not taking the risk that Isaac will die on that mountain. That's the test. I've told you briefly about the Patel ministry. One of the most robust features about Patel as an expression of church is the life of faith that we live with the men and women women we're helping. It requires that risk, it's not an adventure we take on an occasion, it is a way of life. And what that looks like for us personally, my family family and I have now been there almost 29 years. Five years after serving in Spain with Battelle, it was a young organization then, we arrived to Pioneer Battelle in the UK, and it was just a handful of us in a huge Cadbury, you know the chocolate people Cadbury, huge Cadbury-owned property in the south side of Birmingham. And uh, my wife and I, and two of those people were recovered Spanish heroin addicts who didn't speak a word of English. And that's all we had when we started. 23 years later, just to give you a sense of scale of our growth to God's glory, our fleet now numbers 120 commercial vehicles and cars. We've got 11 leased large furniture shops, 13 large residences that house nearly 400 recovering men and women who come to us free of charge in 11 urban urban areas around the UK. We're paying down 11 mortgages. We have retail furniture stock worth, I figured, around 15 million rand. And 90% of everything is run by recovering addicts. 70% with criminal records, and I count in a few fingers the number with university degrees and maybe both hands, those who've had high school degrees. Sometimes I, I think we're crazy. But in secular terms, the people that we're helping are hopelessly unemployable, living on government welfare payments across the UK to the tune of billions of rands every year. We're one of the few charities housing and helping the addicted who don't rely totally on government or private external funding. We get none. It's all done by men and women through faith, building a work ethic, and seeing God supply and meet our needs. So how do we do it? How do we let the hopelessly unemployable run businesses that turn over about 100 million rand a year now in the UK? Well, in a phrase, Battelle pushes out the boundaries of faith, taking incredible risks with risky people. Taking those risks releases incredible potential in people who would rarely otherwise be trusted with opportunities to change. That's the truth. And over time, the great benefit of living as we do nurtures a deeper divine dependence in our lives. I've learned over the years So I've traveled, spoken, what we do in Battelle stirs faith. And so my first challenge to some of us today is a prophetic charge, and here it is. Many, and perhaps hundreds in this size room, you need to hear that to keep growing in faith, to keep pressing on in God, it is no longer optional to hide behind fear and avoid new risks. I'm assuming you're here because you want to go on with God. I'm assuming you want to grow. It's no longer optional to hide behind fear and avoid new risks. Imagine Abraham. God gave him an unimaginable challenge. But with fire and wood and knife in hand, what did he do? He obeyed at great risk. 
Centuries later, we see it again. We see Peter stepping right through fear out onto a stormy sea. In his case, his faith wasn't paralyzed by the risk of waves thrashing outside the boat or the laws of gravity that might have told his mind, hey, a body in, the, in a body of water, you sink. The key was this. Faith just needs one word inside the boat to achieve the impossible. Some of us need to leave here today ready to give God a challenge in a new situation. And that may require you shouting to the storm like Peter did. Lord, if it's you, bid me come. Do you know, serving in Battelle, as we have taken the risks we do, has helped me to rediscover a powerful truth. And it's the truth that thrust Peter that day from the only place of safety around him out into the water. And it's this. With just one word from the master, brothers and sisters, you have permission to act recklessly. All you need is one word. One word from the master, you have supernatural permission to act recklessly. Think of it. One of the boldest, most dramatic miracles in the New Testament happened because Peter took the risk, he shouted through his fear, and just one word came back through the howling winds. What was it? Come. That was it. That's all Jesus said. What if Peter had hesitated? What if fear or doubt paralyzed him? He might have missed the opportunity of a lifetime. He did it once, didn't he? And no one else has done it since. You know, looking back to Abraham, he wasn't forced to climb the mountain that day. He could have let fear and his emotions overwhelm him. Or what if you'd have been his wife, Sarah, ladies? Think she might have thought, I think you've taken a little bit too much of a risk here. It's a little reckless, Abraham. Strangely, she's pretty absent from the story. <laughs> she can get a voice. We can all find reasons, brothers and sisters, to cuddle and protect our promised Isaacs, can't we? Right where we are. Right where you're seated today. God forbid. To conclude our first point, in my experience, there's a moment in every crisis when faith for overcoming a situation is conceived. It's born. And in this case, I believe the moment that overcoming faith is born occurs in a curious phrase in verse 4 that tells us on the third day of their journey, it says, Abraham looked up. Somehow, I don't think we're meant to just read that only literally. As though on the third day, he's walking with his head down, lifts his, suddenly there's a mountain looming in front of him. No, I want you, I, by faith this morning, when I hear those words and read those words, I hear more. I want you to hear more by faith this morning. Some versions say he lifted his eyes. In other words, as his eyes met that mountain, the great object of that test before him, I believe, his faith shifted gears. I'm convinced it's no coincidence that in the very next verse, verse 5, Abraham declares those remarkable faith-filled words to his servants. What does he say? The boy and I will go up to worship and return to you again. How did he know that? You see, destiny pivots between verses 4 and 5. I believe why we read of no struggle of obedience to surrender Isaac at the top of the mountain is because Abraham had already done so by the time he reached the bottom. It was done. He surrendered. You see, the real problem then isn't so much the mountain you're facing, 
It's where your eyes are fixed upon. It's where your eyes are fixed. Maybe you, maybe there's many in a room this size, you've got a whole mountain range looming before you. I don't know. But what has God said to you? Look up with eyes of faith. Invite God to set the the bar of risk a notch or two higher in your life, and they give him no rest until you have his word. But what is not an option when you leave here today is to shrink back and keep playing it safe. This whole day is a challenge about missions, about coming out from behind your fears, about taking the risks to do what the Word of God will enable you to achieve. For decades, you know, something that has always kept us looking up in Battelle, always keeps us aiming higher despite this constant tension I live, my family live, my children grew up with 45 recovering heroin addicts and alcoholics in the same place, right in the same property, same house together. They became my children's best friends. You live in a lot of tension between risk and trust, believe me. But it's a phrase we quote to ourselves. Attempt something so great for God that without him it will fail. Will you attempt something so great for God that without him it will fail? And if for no other reason... Then Jesus said, it's to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, didn't he? That alone tells me all I need to know, that being satisfied with the fruit we've got now in our ministry, in Hatfield, in our church life, is not enough. It isn't acceptable. More fruit to the Father's glory, amen? More fruit to the Father's glory. So look up, shift your eyes of faith higher today. The climb of faith leads to greater risk, but get ready, point two, the climb of faith also leads to greater sacrifice. Let's read verses five to eight. Stay here with the donkey, Abraham told the servants. The boy and I will travel a little farther. We will worship there and then we will come right back. So Abraham placed the wood for the burnt offering on Isaac's shoulders while he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them walked together, Isaac turned to Abraham and said, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, We have the fire and the wood, the boy said, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son, Abraham answered. And they both walked on together. In our Battelle churches, anyone who visits us will tell you that our people love to worship. The dynamic of transformation in their lives, it's just so great that They love to worship. They love to thank God for the hope and the future that he's restored to their their lives and their families. In Birmingham right now, we have a couple of worship bands. Most of our musicians, anyway, are recovering addicts that have been taught from scratch, and the sound's getting better. We're doing all the, the, the latest songs that all of you guys are doing as well. We don't have a smoke machine yet or anything like that, but... We're doing classes for sound mixing. We've got creative workshops going weekly. Uh, We're doing uh, instrument teaching. We're songwriting, doing dance, drama. A big thrust on the arts, as I imagine you guys do as well. But if I asked any of our men and women to give me synonyms to describe worship, you would hear every point I just mentioned, but I doubt they would use the word sacrifice. And if any of them did... I guarantee to be the last word on their list. Most of us will know that in verse 5, 
This is the first mention of the word worship in Scripture. Now remember, this is pre-Moses. This is pre-Mosaic history. There's no Jewish law. There's no tabernacle. There's no ark. There's no psalms. Immediately before Abraham enters the Bible narrative in chapter 12 of Genesis, you've got the Tower of Babel, you've got Noah, and then a pretty bleak landscape of pre-flood history back to Adam and Eve. So my point is, is in almost every aspect you can think of in this passage, Abraham's breaking new ground. He's setting precedent for all of Scripture and for all of us. Now, I know worship means a lot of things to all of us, and justifiably so. In worship, it's where I, where you, experience every week God's comfort. We experience strength in the Word, the fellowship of the saints. But look, we need to look at it differently this morning. At its core, reading this passage becomes evident how easily we can romanticize the whole experience. The fact is, from our earliest record, worship is gritty, it's gutsy, it's costly, it's sacrifice, men and women, pure and simple. By the measure of this passage, worship apparently means learning to obey God in the extreme, in the completely unexpected, when His purpose is so cut across your will that circumstances, they seem to contradict everything He's promised you. You're tempted to question God's character itself. That's what Abraham was experiencing. Sacrifice, of course, comes in countless forms. Let me, I want to share a personal experience with you. The Lord unexpectedly showed me about sacrifice and worship through my own father. And I'm trusting that this is going to touch perhaps a nerve even in your own life where God wants to speak to you through this this morning. My father was the founding elder of our church in Pennsylvania, one of the two founding elders, very pastoral. This was nearly 40 years ago, a beloved leader to this day and the people who knew him then. And he died gradually over 12 years of a degenerative brain disease, starting just three years into the church's life. So for our family, and especially for my mother, it was the funeral that never ended. Twelve long years. And here, the church has started, the church is growing, but he was slowly dying. And the painful struggle of trusting God between 1983 and 1985 produced in me the deepest revelation of my life so far. How that happened, I think, was back when my dad was healthy, the church was young, I was a new believer, and I got it. I understood the discipleship principle that in order to leave the world behind that's going to follow Jesus, he commanded, I seek the kingdom of God first, that I choose to sacrifice my plans, my possessions, my career, my family, and put them on the altar, becoming a missionary, for instance. But until my dad's decline, never before had I faced Abraham's predicament. When someone I loved was tied to the altar against their will and against mine, that's a very different experience. And when God was slow to explain himself in those years, as if he had to at all, well, how easily I felt betrayed. Sound familiar to anybody? My deep disappointment became lethally faith-threatening. 
In those times, I'm not sure your trust can be tested more deeply. That's the climb of faith. You see, Isaac became the archetype of that second altar. In a literal sense, he was the Scripture's first depiction of a living sacrifice, wasn't he? And Abraham was Scripture's first person to face it, and quite profoundly, he calls that sacrifice worship. Now, my dad was ultimately delivered as Isaac was. He's free. He's now among the righteous spirits made perfect, as Hebrews says. During his parting years, if I'm honest, his worship seemed purposeless. But with time, his suffering couldn't have meant more to me. And I'm going to describe it very briefly to you. By the end, after my dad had passed, we were missionaries in Spain. And as I wrestled with and I embraced this trial, I found my experience of God begin to change. Somehow, I knew him more deeply than before, not cognitively, not in a cerebral sense of knowing, but rather, and this is a hopeful phrase, the knowing produced by that prolonged struggle was a firmer grasp of faith, an effortless trust in me. I knew I had found God in a way I can only describe as possessing a greater tolerance for mystery in my life. He no longer needed to explain himself to me. The lingering demand inside me as to why vanished. I knew I could trust him in all things. No questions asked. And I've now walked nearly 25 years cherishing that revelation since my dad's death. In this life, my father never got to experience the good result his suffering wrought in me. And I thank him for it now. Because if we embrace the Lord through those times of trial, of extended suffering, living a contradiction of what we expected and what we're feeling, my father's sacrifice taught me how embracing sacrifice as a principle of worship in all its forms, it not only deepened my trust in God, but it serves to enrich others. His life poured out on that altar still enriches me. Long beyond the grieving, beyond the events themselves, and to a depth I'd never imagined. Will you trust God to speak? Will you trust God for purpose? You've probably heard said, while so many of God's gracious gifts are free, maturity is always expensive. Isn't that true? The climb of faith leads to greater risk, to greater sacrifice, but finally, the climb of faith also leads to greater reward. Thank the Lord. <laughs> Let's read verses 9 to 14. When they arrived at the place where God had told them to go, Abraham built an altar and arranged the wood on it. Then he tied his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. At that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, Abraham replied, here I am. Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not hurt him in any way, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. Then Abraham looked up 
saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. And so he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham named the place Yahweh Yireh. We say in English, Jehovah Jireh, which means the Lord will provide. To this day, people still use that name as a proverb, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now for our final point. It's easy for us to forget, reading this condensed history, that as Abraham walked towards Mount Moriah, the mountain's looming larger, the cost of his obedience is looming larger, but he only had the word of God to go up the mountain, not to come back down with Isaac, did he? So one of the things we marvel at in the passage is how with only the command of God to slay his son could Abraham say, the boy and I will be back after we've worshipped. Thank God, of course, thousands of years later, the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer. Hebrews 11 reads, Abraham was ready to sacrifice his only son Isaac, even though God had told him, Isaac is the son through whom your descendants will be counted. Abraham reasoned. Abraham trusted that if Isaac died, God was able to bring him back to life again. This is another amazing precedent set in this passage. This amazing response reflects a faith so mature beyond the revelation of Abraham's time. He believed the unheard of, didn't he? Abraham foresaw resurrection in his heart before it was ever penned in Scripture. What was ever suggested is possible. It's incredible. But it doesn't end there. I've spent time for you describing risk and sacrifice at length, but in these verses 9 to 14, we need to grasp how radical the climax of this encounter is if we're to appreciate the richness, the beauty of its outcome, how it applies to us. Abraham, the father of faith, had trusted God before, of course, and under some pretty severe conditions, hadn't he? Decades earlier, remember, he left the Ur of Chaldees with his family in obedience to God, wandering like nomads for years in foreign desert lands. That's a pretty good test, wouldn't you say? Anybody else done that lately? At 75 years old, God promised him a long-desired son. And the fulfillment of that promise took 25 more years of waiting at 75. But see, this revelation at Mount Moriah was different. This lesson carried a different price tag than those previous faith-building experiences. And what a moment in verse 10, one of the most dramatic in Scripture is Abraham raised the knife above Isaac to slam. Scripture tells us in that moment he passed the test. The Lord spoke, Now I know that you truly fear God, for you have not withheld from me your son your only son. In other words, in that moment, Abraham's priorities were proven perfect. There was purpose. That is, Isaac and the promise were God's, not his. Case closed. It was over. And though he passed the test, it's also crucial to know Abraham not only received back his son that day, but he the very nature of worship itself was redefined. It was boldly illustrated. Let me explain. Worship was turned inside out from something that to this point had always been outside in. Prior to Genesis 22, how did people offer worship to God? There's a few instances of it in the Bible. Sacrifice to Yahweh was customarily rendered through animals. 
through animal sacrifice. Now, as meaningful as that practice was, by nature, it meant worship was primarily an external experience. It was something impersonal to this point, right? But get this, for the first time in Genesis 22, worship becomes intensely relational. Would he, did he really fear and love God above all else? And the answer was a resounding yes. For the first time on Mount Moriah, worship doesn't cost the animal anything. It co- it's going to cost Abraham everything. That's quite a different result. Someone he held dearer than his own life, it would cost him. But it even goes deeper. The unique encounter with God here is a seminal moment because as this is occurring right here in the extreme heat of this crucible of faith, you know what else happens? The first commandment, the greatest commandment is forged right here. Think of it. Love for God. Not through animals. Love for God with all of the human heart, mind, soul, and strength becomes the measure of true worship from this moment forward. Right? You know, at the end of that painful, traumatizing ordeal, the name Abraham attributed to his experience of God that day symbolized, I think, the deepest revelation of his, his life to that point. All that he'd gone through brought him to a place of revelation that he'd never experienced before. It was so unique that, in fact, nobody else in Scripture ever owned as Abraham owned so personally the name he attributed to God that day. Abraham immortalized the encounter for all time. What did he name the place? Jehovah, my provider. Because face it, if you'd been through that, no one could declare that name with the relief and the gratitude that Abraham could. But sooner or later, perhaps you're like me. For many years, my experience of worship was essentially limited to church attendance. In other words, for me, a good time of worship meant we sang the songs I liked best, the preacher was good. But how about you? With time, you begin to long for more of God. Do you long for more of God? The Spirit creates that thirst, that hunger to know more, to touch more, to taste more, to experience more. I long for more of God. If our relationship is to deepen with him, brothers and sisters, the climb of faith will inevitably lead us to a different quality of worship, the kind that Abraham first pioneered. Maybe you're in the midst of it now. Maybe you're feeling that. Maybe you're living that. Maybe it's making sense to you. Don't miss the real point of the test here. Our willingness to risk and sacrifice, they're absolutely necessary. But God was never going to let Isaac die at Abraham's hand on Mount Moriah. No, the real point was to teach Abraham. It was to teach Isaac. It was to teach all of us, everyone since. You know what? Some of life's most profound encounters with God, where we really lay claim to new experiences of his name, his loving character, they occur when his purpose contradicts our every expectation of him. When his greater purpose offends your natural mind and understanding. But nonetheless, like Abraham, we worship. Sound familiar? You know, it's in those times in my life when 
when I felt trapped in the will of God, when something's tied to the altar that I don't want there, and I cry, Father, my love for you is unconditional. It's not based on when and what I choose to place on the altar. The Lord, with knife in hand like Abraham, at the cost of my dreams, at the cost of the promise I live for, I will trust you. Can you say that today in your heart and your life? I will trust you. God, I will trust you to somehow one day resurrect, resurrect anything you ask me to let die. I'll trust you. Like Abraham, I will honor you with my deepest trust proven in my deepest sacrifices. Brothers and sisters, that's worship. That's worship. Take courage and hope today. The rewards for trusting God like that are remarkable, and we see it here in Abraham's life. I'm convinced, from my own experience, but certainly what I trust and I read from Scripture, that no matter how desperate the sacrifice he requires of us, no matter the mystery you are experiencing and living right now, God will in turn reveal something marvelous of himself. Trust him in your sacrifice, in your worship, to reveal himself in a manner uniquely personal to you. He did it for me. He did it to Abraham. That may be his divine deliverer, your own intimate supernatural experience of Jehovah provider. Imagine all of us say we need that. Or it might be as simple but life-changing as knowing deep inside you a greater tolerance for mystery. I trust you, Lord. Whatever your heart needs to keep a firm grasp on eternal life and a deepening trust in him, let's believe God for that today. Can we stand and worship? I say a prayer, Louis, just to end, and I'll hand it back to Pastor Louis then. So if the Lord has touched a nerve or touched a concern, a pain, a question in your own heart, can you just stretch your hands out with me? And Father, we all want to see you supernaturally provide. <laughs> Who doesn't want the reward of a richer revelation of Jehovah provider? But Father, we see you, you reserve it for those who sustain the lifeline lifelong climb of faith. And so Father, together with my brothers and sisters here, we look up, we lift our faith and spiritual vision to a higher place today, set our aim higher, calibrated higher, Lord, on new targets of faith to attempt something so great for you, Lord, without you it will fail. Help us to risk more, Father. Those hiding behind fear, avoiding risk, Help them to hear your word clearly and then get out from behind that fear, not to hesitate because then you have permission to be reckless. Lord, we thank you oh, for the radical promises. We participate with you by faith, Lord. Finally, teach us to sacrifice all, Father. Why don't you just ask yourself, what am I holding back, Father? It's like Abraham, 
Lord, I will trust you to resurrect in your timing and to your glory whatever you ask me to tie to the altar. Lord, we come with our lives and we worship today. And thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Kent, for that message, which I really believe is a message we have to meditate on and take to heart and hear what the Lord is saying to us. He has good things in store for us, but we're going to have to, and we are being asked by the Lord to take greater risks, to step out in faith. And we are so blessed with the response of faith, like I said earlier, that is coming from you. And we want to keep on stepping out, lifting our vision, lifting our eyes to say, more Lord, for your name's sake. Are we in agreement with that? Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. May he go with you in this week. Wherever he sends you, be a carrier of his glory in this week. Remember the missionaries' exhibitions on my right and to the left, and please go to visit them. And remember the the medical outreach in the Kopenong Hall, if you can please go there. And then we've got those stickers. I forgot to mention that earlier. Those of you that remember from last week, we've got little stickers that are also on your chairs. If you want to trust in the Lord as a prophetic action for a part of the world, then write your name on that sticker and go stick it on our two maps that we have and uh, put them on there. And we're praying for those places in the world and we're trusting God for breakthrough there also. Thank you very much.